All right, as we jump into our text this morning, which comes from Zechariah, Old Testament book, Zechariah, kids, if I could get your attention for like two minutes, tell you all some really awesome stuff, uh, and, and then we're going to jump into the text. So this is what the uh, sermon is going to be about. This is what the scripture reading is going to be about. Um, kids, do you all know what irony is? It's actually kind of a hard concept, irony. Uh, I'm going to give you all some examples of irony, just so we can all get, get on the same page. This is actually, these are good examples of irony from um, a wonderful, funny comedian. Um, hey, this is ironic. Getting run over by an ambulance. Does that make sense? Okay, because irony is like thinking you'll get one thing, and then you get the opposite. Getting run over by an ambulance. Okay, how about this? Drowning in the pool of a cruise ship at sea. Like you're in a boat in the middle of the ocean and you drown in the pool. Okay, that's irony is thinking like one thing is going to happen and the opposite happens. How about this? Getting beat up with a life vest. <laughs> okay, how about this one? Ch choking while playing air guitar. Air guitar. Ah, air, air guitar. Okay, how about this one? What's the one thing a babysitter should not do? Sit on the baby. Well, that's a little ironic. Okay, how about this? Having a heart attack during a game of charades. Y'all kids, you've, now, you've probably never played charades before, but like you, you, someone's trying to guess what you're doing, and they're like, oh, heart attack, and you're really dying. Okay, that's ironic. Okay, how about this? A know-it-all who knows everything except that they're annoying. Oh, burn on the know-it-alls. Okay, how about this? Did y'all know it is illegal to yell fire in a crowded theater. Like, that's really weird. So if there is a fire, the comedian says, what are you supposed to get? Like, you got flames, uh, sm smoke maker, bad hot, something like, okay. How about this? Um, irony is thinking that you're going to do one thing and you do the opposite. Uh, and it, like quicksand. Why does quicksand work so slowly? Like, that's weird. Like, that's ironic, right? Okay, anyway, here's, here's some irony for us. Irony is this thing, like, you think one thing's going to happen and the opposite happens. Let me tell you some irony about us and about you. When things are really easy for us, kids, we act like we don't need Jesus. Okay? Things are really easy. We're like, oh, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good right now. Okay, how about this? When things are really, really hard, then we act like, Jesus either can't help us or he doesn't want to help us. That's weird too. That's like oppo. Okay? Irony is whether things are, the irony about our faith is like whether things are good or things are bad, we act like Jesus is really far away from us. Whether things are good or things are bad, we act like ah, Jesus is just not here. He's not helping. Which is really, really crazy ironic because we come here and we say things like, oh yeah, no, Jesus came down from heaven, all the way down from heaven, and he was born, and he lived, and he died to save me. And that's true. And, but then we act like he's not with us. He came down from heaven in order to get you from your sin and from death so that you could be with him forever. That's the truth. Now, so here's what I want you to, uh, kids, here's what I want you to remember today, tomorrow, the next day, forever. If Jesus went all the way to the cross for you, 
think about this. If Jesus went all the way to the cross for you, you can know that he is still with you right, right now. So, kids, right now, can you see Jesus? No. Can Jesus see you? Yes. Yes. And that's awesome. And that's really, really good news. Even though you cannot see Jesus right now, even when things are hard or they're really good, even though you can't see him, he sees you and he is literally with you right now. And he will be with you forever. And when Jesus comes back, then will you see Jesus? Yes. Yes. When Jesus comes back, then you will see Jesus forever. And that's really good news because he is coming back. So here's what we are getting into this spring. Persia, this this great uh, world empire back in the day, has freed the Israelites who were taken into captivity by the previous world empire, Babylon. So Babylon comes along, destroys Jerusalem and the temple. They take uh, the Jews to Babylon into captivity for 70 years. Then Persia comes along and they free them. Uh, and they send any Israelites that want to go back. You can go back to Jerusalem. You can go back to your temple and do all that stuff. And so the poorest of the poor Jews, they go. They go back. They return to Jerusalem. They start rebuilding the temple, and they find all kinds of trouble, all kinds of opposition, all kinds of suffering. So God sends his prophet Zechariah to these people. Okay, this is really important. This is, this is like on the front end, you need to know this stuff. This spring, we're only going to deal with the first half of Zechariah. That's it. And that's okay. Because Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, is what scholars call a diptych. A diptych. Uh, Two halves of the book. The two halves of the book are parallel to each other. Diptych and art is like that. It's those engravings that are on a hinge so that the artwork is protected if you want to close it. And so they mirror each other and they make one piece of art. Well, this is in, in this uh, structure. This is what this is. Uh, so the two halves of the book of Zechariah parallel each other in terms of structure, which is crazy amazing structure we're going to try and get into, and in terms of the themes of what Zechariah is dealing with. And there's this central passage that we're going to end on at the end of the spring, which is like the hinge of the whole book. Okay, so uh, both halves... Uh, uh, they, they form this diptych. And then here's where the structure gets awesome. Each half is also a diptych in and of itself. And so, like, there's this other hinge with central passages. And, and so it's crazy amazing how it is organized and structures a true work of art. Uh, the second, so the second half of Zechariah are two oracles around a central passage. And they parallel what comes in the first half. The first half, what we're doing of the book of Zechariah is a series of seven night visions. The fourth vision being that central hinge uh, in that half. Uh, So these visions are given to Zechariah by God to give to the people of God who are trying to rebuild this temple and they are in a really bad way. The text this morning is Zechariah chapter 1 verses 7 to 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat and the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the deep, and behind him were red, 
sorrel and white horses. And then I said, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for, for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, verse 8. Verse 8 in this passage is a big deal. If you remember the parables in the New Testament, Jesus' parables, there's one parable, the parable of the sower. That parable is the key to all the other parables. That parable, if you get that parable, you can get the other parables because it makes sense of all the other parables. That's what verse 8 is here for the entire book of Zechariah. It's the key. Verse 8, I saw in the night, this is Zechariah, woof, vision, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the deep, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. We've never done this. Uh, I don't think. Someone's going to correct me at the end. We've never done this, but this morning, we're going to focus on this one figure. The red rider. Who is the rider on the red horse? My mic is slipping off. I have to keep doing this. Sorry. Uh, and just tell me if it's... Hey, just motion to me. Okay. Now, we're, so we're going to come back to... We're, we're going to come back to the details in... There's a lot of fun stuff in here we're going to come back to. Uh, like what specifically is said, what this stuff means, another Sunday. But just for now, like I want you to focus on how this writer is identified in the passage itself. Verse 8 says that this man on the red horse is standing among the myrtle trees. Okay? Then in verse 9, Zechariah asks, you've got to kind of see what's going on here, the scene, like who are all the players? Verse 9, Zechariah asks, like, what am I looking at? And an attending angel, another angel that is there, standing next to Zechariah, responds, okay, we're going to explain. And then, in verse 10, verse 10 shifts back to, it says, the man who is standing among the myrtle trees. And the man who is standing among the myrtle trees, he starts to answer Zechariah's question. And then, verse 11, the other riders, there are all these other riders who are there. They respond to the man riding the red horse. It says, the other riders answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. Do you see that? The man, the rider on the red horse, the, the man who's standing there, the rider on the horse who's standing there, that's the same person, and the angel of the Lord who's standing there, it's the same person. It's the same individual. 
And this person, this individual has authority over all the other angel horsemen that are there. And then verse 12, it says, The angel of the Lord calls out, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of, Jeru- and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? Again, we are going to come back to what is actually said here, the content, another Sunday, and I'm going to make the argument, I'm going to make the argument in detail for what I'm about to say, but suffice it to say, verse 12, the angel of the Lord calls out to the Lord of hosts, that's God, he calls out to the Lord of hosts, and then in verse 13 it says, the Lord answers gracious and comforting words to the attending angel standing next to Zechariah. Okay, that reference to the Lord in verse 13 is referring to the angel of the Lord who calls out to the Lord of hosts because the angel of the Lord is referring to himself when he calls out to the Lord of hosts. And he answers his self-referential question in answer to Zechariah's original question. What am I looking at? This figure, this rider on the red horse, this man-angel is a theophany. It is a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. This is the Son of God. And this intense vision of the Son of God is meant to give Zechariah, to give the people of God, a right perspective. On the uh, social medias, there's a video from a few years ago of a group of people at a restaurant eating some dinner, hotel restaurant. Uh, They're on the balcony of the fourth floor. Uh, And all of a sudden, this guy, he jumps up on the uh, the ledge and he addresses the crowd and he says, hey, everybody, everybody, as you know, Courtney and me have been dating for some time now, and it's time I ask her a very important question. And that, you know, the, the video camera, the phone, it pans over to the girl, the, uh, uh, this girl, and she's, now she's like super wide-eyed, and she's cupping her hands like, like she, knows what's, she knows what's about to come. And then it goes back, you know, it pans back to the guy who turns to his friend and says, you know, Bobby, the ring, please. You know, and Bobby, you know, tosses him the ring. As he lobs him the ring, the guy's looking back at his, uh, at his girlfriend, and, and he just, for a split second, you know, takes his eye off the box, and he looks back, and he's, he's grabbing the box. He forgets where he is, and he takes a step back to grab the box, and he falls. And everyone there, in absolute terror, freaking out, run, like, you know, just runs to the edge like they could do anything, and they run to the edge, and they look over, and he has fallen. He's fallen to his safety mattress, his inflatable safety pad, and written all over it is, will you marry me? What a jerk. Um, kids, that is not how you ask someone to marry you. Uh, the fiance, though, the girl, is driven to the edge to get the real perspective. I think this illustration works. <laughs> <I> mean, or, <laughs> but think about it. If she had stayed back, if she had just stayed back, or if she had just run away, uh, uh, it, that would have been, like if she would run away in absolute terror and horror and grief, that would have been understandable. 
but she would have been in the dark about like what's really true. And the way Zechariah begins is to bring you to the edge of reality and let you peer over it into the deeper reality of heaven to show you that things are not what they seem. That they're better. Uh, if we were able to if we were able to stay back and experience life without this heavenly perspective, life would look horrible, unfair, chaotic, meaningless, out of control. And the visions, what, what visions do is they reveal that there is more going on than you can see. And in this very first vision given to Zechariah to give to the people of God is this alarming weird, freaky vision of an ocean. It's an ocean, and in the middle of the ocean are a group of myrtle trees. And in the midst of the myrtle trees is an army of warriors on horses in the ocean, and at the head of them, one rider on a red horse. So when the symbols in these visions, when they're not clear— like when they're not clear to someone in the vision, someone in the vision always explains the symbolism. Like in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you get the visions and they're not clear. Someone in that vision is going to explain to you, hey, like someone like the angel of the Lord or someone like this attending angel who's going to act like a guide to Zechariah throughout the visions, they explain it. But they do not explain all the symbolism. And they don't explain all the symbolism because some of the symbolism is clear. If it's clear, they don't explain it. And it may not, it, 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 to us, now to us, it may not seem like we get a whole lot of explanation as to who the Red Rider is. Like, you gotta, you gotta really pay attention to everything you just did with verse 8, 9, 10, and then how they all kind of come together in these different references. Okay, may not seem all that clear to us, uh, but it would have been to Zechariah. It would have been clear to Zechariah, and it would have been clear to the people of God that this rider was God himself. The people of God at this time just been freed. They know that God could appear as a man. In Genesis 32, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham and the head of the people of God, is confronted by a man in the middle of the night who fights and wrestles with him all night. And in the morning, the man reveals himself to be God. The people of God had heard of God appearing as a divine warrior. In Joshua 5, as Israel first crossed into the promised land, Joshua, the leader of Israel, the second Moses, you know, Moses, the second right-hand man, now he's the leader. Uh, he is suddenly confronted by a man in the road, blocking the road, it says, with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And the man said, no. That's a scary answer. No. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army does not say what every other angel says when, the, when angels start to get worshiped. Don't, ooh, don't worship me. No, the, this man, angel of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, says to Joshua, Yeah, yeah, and take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Why is that holy ground? Because God is standing there. The people of God had heard of the angel of the Lord. They had heard of this angel of the Lord many times, and they knew his true identity because the angel of the Lord 
says things of himself that can only be said of God. It's a little later in Judges chapter 2, it says this, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, he's saying this to the people of God, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. We can keep going. There's more instances of this. But, and as we keep going in Zechariah, we're going to see this figure again, this angel of the Lord again, with these divine attributes and these divine prerogatives. What, what we did for our confession of faith uh, from Revelation 19, the closest imagery, the most obvious fulfillment of this Savior writer is at the end of the Bible in Revelation 19, which is a vision of the end of the world, and uh, Jesus Christ shows up, shows up on Judgment Day. And there he is. He is this rider on a white horse. So, 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 tying all this together, why is our Savior riding on a red horse right here in Zechariah? This is important. There's not just one red horse. There's an army of horses. And the colors of these horses are all supposed to be taken together. Again, this awesome image, this awesome vision. There's red horses, just like the one the red rider is on. Uh, and there are sorrel horses. Which, that is a light red. A light red, a shade of red that actually the verb, uh, or the word used for sorrel here comes from the Hebrew verb used for the shining of the sun. And there are white horses. And all these horses together, shades of red and, and, you know, sun, orange, awesomeness, and white, all these horses together are an image of a great fire. Because in the rebuilding of the temple, here are the Jews, they are back, and they are rebuilding this temple, and in the rebuilding of the temple, there's not going to be that glory presence of God that there was before. Not like there was in Solomon's day. Do y'all remember, you know, do your little history uh, lesson. Remember the Holy Spirit of God? The Holy Spirit of God came down in a theophany. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, came down in a manifestation. Not as a man, not as an angel, or as a man-angel. He came down in two giant pillars, these twin pillars of smoke and fire. And he leads the Israelites through the wilderness. Okay, that fiery glory presence of God then descended on the original temple in Jerusalem. And it filled up the Holy of Holies, that innermost place in the temple in Jerusalem when it was finished. And it remained there. It remained there in the Holy of Holies until God left it when he sent Babylon on Jerusalem to destroy it. And it was all judgment. So the people of God used to be able, they used to be able to see the fiery presence of God in the temple. But with this rebuild, is not going to be like that. That presence is not coming back. Hence, the vision. Because they don't have a visual presence of God in the temple because they are in the dark. These visions reveal what they can't see, but is still true. 
glory is in their midst. God is with them. We kept watching that, if you were here last time, we talked about this new series, National Geographic, called Welcome to Earth with host Will Smith. Uh, the, the second episode is called Descent into Darkness. Uh, Will Smith, he gets in this little itty-bitty plastic sphere submarine with a marine biologist and a driver. Uh, and that's all I can fit in this thing. And they descend th- a kilometer, uh, 3,300 feet down to the bottom of the ocean. Somewhere that is so deep, light cannot get down there. So, the way this works is the deeper you go, this sounds, oh, that sounds obvious, but the deeper you go, the more light you lose. And with that, the more colors you lose. So, because light is made up of lots of colors, right? You know, the rainbow stuff, that's all the colors that light uh, comprises. And as the light hits the water, different colors get absorbed before others. Okay, so Will Smith, he gets in this plastic sphere, sphere sub thing with a bright red shirt on. And pretty soon, his shirt is blue. And uh, uh, everything in the sub is blue. Because blue is the last color to go. Which is why everything in the ocean looks blue. Did not know that. But you keep going. You keep going. Come on, microphone. Uh, you keep going. Uh, and blue goes too. Eventually, you keep going deeper, deeper, deeper. You're going to lose the blue. And there's only darkness. So they get down. They get all the way, they get all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. And they see nothing. They see nothing. They, they, they've got their lights on. They've got the lights on in the sub. And they're down at the very, very bottom. And they see nothing. And then they turn their lights out. They turn their lights off, and then there's life, and there's light all around them. It's so weird. It is called bioluminescence. It's a chemical reaction where creatures use oxygen in the water to create light. So there are hundreds, there are thousands of creatures who make their own light, and they use that light to communicate to one another. In another part of the uh, in another part of the world during the same episode, another part of the, you know they do these kind of cuts to these different uh, scientists. In another part of the world, scientists took infra, infrared lights into the woods at night in the pitch pitch dark, and they, what they discovered and they just this was an accident that they discovered this. And now there are these scientists going all around trying to figure out the, uh, more and more of this. But they discovered that there are a whole bunch of animals that communicate with colors that we can't see. You can see them with an infrared light. I mean, they look like, like someone has graffitied them. It's so freaky weird. Uh, this, they say this whole world has been there all along. We just can't see it with our eyes. And then in Brazil, there's an explorer who's overlooking, he's overlooking the largest waterfall system in the world at night during a full moon when the skies are clear. A ghostly arc of light appears in the mist. It's this thin gray line in the air that they say is nearly impossible to see even though it stretches across the entire gorge. It says, but with the right camera and the right lens, you can see it for what it really is. It's a moonbow. It says, but the moonlight isn't actually strong enough to activate our color vision, so the moonbow remains hidden in plain 
sight. He says it's a world of color that is completely hidden in darkness. Those are pictures. Look at all these, these visions that are going to come to Zechariah. They're all at night. They're all given at night. Zechariah is seeing this in the dark, and that means that, that, like he's seeing this in the midst of what is true. He's seeing this in the midst of darkness. He's seeing, the, he's seeing what he's seeing, that this is true in the midst of a sinful, fallen world. This is true. Uh, this is happening where it, this world is a danger. This world of darkness is a danger to God's people who are living in a world of sin. And it begs the question for Zechariah and for the people who are there, how are the Jews going to build God's temple surrounded by powerful enemies and dangers on every side in the dark? How will God's kingdom be established with a small group of poor, ragtag, recent exiles? And as the Jews are rebuilding the temple, the message is, you are not alone. And they would hear of a vision of the Lord himself riding on a horse in the midst of his people, in the midst of all the darkness, and in the midst of the danger, and in the midst of the struggle. So what for us is, Frederick Buechner, he's an American theologian, he says that we go to church, we go to church waiting for a miracle. Waiting for a miracle that God would somehow make his presence real to us. As Buechner says, that we know God more often by his absence than his presence. As in, more than anything, your own experience of the absence of God has brought you here in search of his presence. What? Because COVID. Because the holidays are over and whatever we thought they were going to be, they weren't. Because work. Uh, because of family. Because everyone is mad and everyone is suspicious. Because it's 2022 and it's the same old, same old. Because underneath our reputation and underneath our nice clothes, we are, every single one of us is a mess. And we are in the dark. And we are afraid that we are alone. In the second half of Zechariah and the oracle that is parallel to this vision, the writer appears again. But this time he's not riding a red horse. Listen to this. This is Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. Is it, does that sound familiar? That's Jesus. This is a prophecy about Jesus who goes to Jerusalem at the end, knowing it's the end, knowing he is going to be captured and knowing he is going to be put to death by his enemies. The church now today, we look back on that moment and we call it the triumphal entry of Jesus. The triumphal entry uh, that Jesus shows up this is when everyone's going crazy. They've got the palm fronds. They're yelling, Hosanna, save us. They are praising Jesus. And Jesus chooses to ride into Jerusalem at this moment as a conquering king, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. 
There are ancient Near Eastern texts dating back, again, this isn't clear to us, it was clear to them back in the day. There are ancient Near Eastern texts dating back to 18th century BC uh, that describe a particular kind of animal being sacrificed in order to ratify a covenant ceremony. So what you'd have in a covenant ceremony, you've got this big, big, powerful king, like an overlord, like an emperor king. And then you've got a, a smaller vassal, like regional king, and they're going to make an agreement. They're going to make a, a covenant with each other. Uh, and the popular animal to sacrifice for this, which is you'd sacrifice an animal to say, like, we're signing on the dotted line. Here we are, we're agreeing, we're shaking hands over this. This is how we're saying. Specifically, the sacrificed animal that you would sacrifice, it symbolized the curse that would overtake anyone who breaks the covenant. And the animal, the popular choice that they sacrificed to seal the covenant was specifically the colt of a donkey. Like you read here in Zechariah 9. Like you read in the Gospels. It's what they called the covenant donkey. But it is not the donkey this time who's going to shed his blood to make a new covenant it's the rider. The donkey is taking its rider, Jesus, to Jerusalem, to the cross. Some 500 years before the cross, Zechariah sees the mounted Savior. First, in Zechariah 1, as the terrifying rider on the red horse. And then he's confronted by him again in Zechariah 9 as the humble sacrificial king riding on the donkey. If that feels schizophrenic, that's not schizophrenic. We're schizophrenic because we think Jesus is absent. And when he's not absent, we think Jesus is frightening and unyielding, as in, I, I, I don't measure up. I just disappoint him. It's really hard to keep trying. And he's not much help in the dark. Or, this is our schizophrenia, or we think he's absent or, or he's not and he's just too terrifying to love us. Or he's absent and when he's not absent, he just doesn't care. Like he's too, he's too easygoing. And so he doesn't feel like much help in the dark. Meek, mild, nice Jesus. Zachariah shows us who Jesus is. Zachariah shows us our powerful Lord who is with us as a servant and more, so much, so much more than sharing our darkness with us. He takes the ultimate darkness of what it is to be without God and he takes that in our place. We fear, we're afraid that God has abandoned his people and the reality is we are God's people only because he has not abandoned us. We fear our Lord and Savior has abandoned us. The reality is our Lord and Savior was abandoned for us so that we would not be. Loved ones, I know how you feel. And the truth is we are not alone. And if we have eyes to see, the eyes of faith to see, glory is in our midst. Let's pray. Father, we pray, we end uh, with that, and, and we pray uh, asking uh, for hearts to believe that though we can't see you, you are truly right here. And that is, in one sense, more awesome than we can possibly fathom. Uh, 
and in the same sense, even the more awesome because you're here for us and with us. Because you love us. If we, if we could tear down the dividing wall between this reality and the heaven reality and see that you're here among your heavenly host, sitting on your throne, taking care of us, Father, that's, that would be enough. And yet we can't see it with our own eyes. Help us to see it with the eyes of faith. Knowing that that is true right now. Knowing that it's true when we leave here. Knowing that you go with us. Knowing that it's true tomorrow. That one day you actually are going to tear down that dividing wall. You're coming back. And you're bringing heaven with you. And you're going to make everything sad untrue. And you're going to make us right and holy and good. We long for that day. And we long and we hope and we pray that you will preserve us in faith until that day comes. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, more awesome than we can imagine. Thank you for this vision. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.